one, and probably what is the weirdest kickoff to a Christmas series, we are kicking off Matthew 1 by reading the genealogy of Jesus. I know, you are all so excited for me to butcher a list of ancient names. It's going to be so fun. But over the last few weeks, we've kind of been uh, in our sermon series over renewal and even to some extent over belong. We've been a little bit up in the stratosphere uh, talking about culture and renewal and what's the church's responsibility and job in an increasingly post-Christian world. And that's been fun and good, but I know that's not everyone's kind of cup of tea, so to speak. So I'm going to try my best to swing the pendulum back and go just really over the next few weeks into the dirt of the text, so to speak. And what I mean by that is just to read the Bible, let the Bible speak for what it says, and see if I can point out some really cool things as we dig through uh, some of the more complex, nuanced part of Matthew's gospel. Um, so, of course, that, that was my plan. It still is my plan. Um, but this whole year, the theme of 2022, and I've said this multiple times, is uh, here's my plan. God laughs at it and then changes it. That's just... Over and over again, if you know my story, that's just this year in the books. And so why would it be any different here? My original plan uh, this week was just to do what I'm sure all of you do, right? Be honest with me. When you start your new, like, new year, read the Bible in a year plan, you usually start in, like, Genesis or Psalms. Uh, or Do, like, a Genesis, a Psalm, and then it'll be Matthew. And you open up to Matthew chapter 1. You've already read, like, three chapters of Genesis, a chapter of Psalms. And you look at Matthew 1. You see a list of names and say... I don't need to bother with that. And you just jump down to verse 18. Any of you do that, right? Because that's how I was going to preach this sermon today. I'll be honest. I read Matthew 1 and I thought like, okay, there's a list of names there. Let's just jump to Matthew 18. Start with the birth story. That'll be a good Christmas kickoff. And as I was studying it, again, I made my plan. God laughed at it. And I started to read through the genealogy and found some really interesting things in it. Some things that I think are worth taking some time to point out because really what Matthew's doing is he's setting the entire tone for his in book, for the gospel of Matthew. And I think one of the problems we have, with, especially within the Christmas story, is we kind of just swim in it so much that it becomes really, really normal. It's a story about a young lady that gets pregnant out of wedlock and then she gives birth in a manger and some wise men come and some shepherds come and we tell our kids and we put up our nativities and it's really cool and it's really pretty and it's really poetic this time of year. But sometimes we never get below the surface level of what's really happening in this story, what, what the gospels are claiming to be really happening beneath that in this story. And so that's what I wanna to try to do today. I want to see if I can point out to you just how deep, or at least kind of see, how deep this story really runs. Because Matthew is a literary genius. I mean, he is, we, we have this thing in our modern society where we think like, we're the smartest people in the world and anyone that came before us isn't smart at all. Look at everything we've built. And we fail to understand just how intelligent people have always been. Like we're made in God's image. We, we carry wisdom. And just because their technology wasn't advanced didn't mean their intellect wasn't as advanced. And I think I can point this out to you because Matthew, I'm telling you, crazy how smart this guy was. I mean, he was a tax collector, right? Like he had to know how to count and do all this other stuff. So by the way, we're going to dive into this pretty deep. I want to be very clear again, right off the start. As we look for a deeper complexity under the surface layer, please understand this is not in any attempt to formulate some sort of hidden secret message that Matthew hid within the text. That we, that's not the point of the Bible. 
That's never the point of the Bible. If anyone ever gets up and they say, I found a new secret code hidden in the Bible and I'm going to tell you, just walk out of the service. Don't, don't listen to that. The Bible doesn't have some sort of secret hidden code that if you can add this number to this number, then it comes out to this Greek letter and that Greek letter. That's not the point of the Bible. The surface level of the Bible is the clear surface purpose of the Bible, the story of Jesus who came to rescue and ransom uh, the world stuck within their sins. That's the story. And every complexity as we go deeper only verifies that story more. So any claim that would say something along the lines of this is how we can tell the future of America. Come on, man. Like just let the Bible speak for what it speaks about and see the supporting of who Jesus is and what Jesus claims to be true. There's my piece on that soapbox. Let's move on. We're going to navigate a bit into the thick of these layers in complexities. Again, none of that is in an attempt to discover something new. It's all an attempt to just go deeper in our understanding of this story of a baby that we celebrate at Christmas time and just how, steep, how deep this story runs from a manger to a cross. And really, it runs so much deeper that it stretches from eternity to eternity. We'll come back to that. Now, Matthew is not just going to give you that. Matthew is not writing a systematic theology. He's not giving you a theology textbook. Instead, Matthew is going to tell you a story. He wants you to understand the story, and he's going to then invite you into this story to look at and pick up on the nuances and complexities to, to really contemplate this whole thing. And if you think about it, the hope is as you contemplate, you find yourself just bewildered with how big God really is, how much there is within the text, and then it leads you to worship God. In some ways, this is just like what good artwork is, right? You know, a good movie is a movie that you can watch five, six, seven, eight times, and you're still picking up some cool things that you didn't notice the first few times you watched the movie. A good book is a book you can read over and over again and pick up things you didn't pick up on the first few times. A good piece of artwork, a good piece of music are things that you can go back to and enjoy a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, 150th time and see things that you didn't see the first time. That's the complexity of it. In fact, we've kind of moved to this stage in our culture where we understand this so well that people do this with logos. Have you ever noticed this? Or I'll put a couple logos up for you so you can see. Um, yeah, right? So, so FedEx, you may have noticed this before, but have you ever noticed the arrow between the E and the X in FedEx? There's, there's a perfect arrow right between that E and that X in the end. It's intentional because FedEx is trying to say we're going to get it to the direction, the destination. That's a point. There's some nuance and complexity in that. I like Little Caesars the most, though, right? Because if you ever notice this, you notice the little uh, kind of imprint on the uh, Caesar. Is that who that is? Uh, Caesar's tunic. It's a little design, but every design is LC. LC, L Little Caesars, Little Caesars, Little Caesars. See that? Yeah. But I was thinking about that, right? Like, it's kind of interesting. But I was thinking about, imagine... Right, 2,000 years from now, someone in some futuristic society, if the world goes that long by some means, is excavating Portales, New Mexico. And they're trying to see what was life in Portales like in 2000. And they somehow uncover like a perfectly preserved Little Caesars pizza box. And they see this. Are they going to pick up on the LCL? All they get is that, that little image right there. No, they're going to miss all of that, right? Because they don't live in the context. In fact, they're probably going to, if that's all they have, they're going to be like, 2,000 years ago, Portales had a weird obsession with Roman culture. And like, they're going to land so far away. They're never going to look at that and say the LC stands for Little Caesars, which is the incorporation which makes cheap pizza. Like, that's not the purpose of it. 
So my point is to pick up on these complexities and these nuances, a lot of it demands understanding the context in which that product, that piece of artwork, that movie, whatever it is, came from. And the Bible's no different. The difficulty now is we are oceans removed from the context of Scripture. We are oceans removed from the cultural context of Hebraic culture within the Roman Empire. And so there's so many things that we just kind of miss. So let me see if I can prove that to you right when we start and point out some things along the way. Verse 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Here's the thing you've already missed. Matthew just gave four really big claims right from the very first verse. But in order for you to see that, i got to be a little bit annoying here and take you to the Greek, okay? So I'm going to put up the Greek on the screen so you can see what the Greek text says with the English translation below it. And here's the funny thing. I, I put it, I transliterated it into English so you can read it. But you know some of these words in the Greek, right? So let's start. Biblos, genesis, Jesus, Christu. Biblos, come on, what's that word? Bible, yeah, that's really good. Bible is just the Greek word for book or story or account or record or anything like that. So we just took it, this is the book. So we took the word Bible from Greek, layered it over this. This is the Bible. That's it. So nothing much to say there. The next word's really important though. Genesis or genesis, which sounds a lot like our word. Genesis, absolutely. Where have you heard the word Genesis before? In the Bible. This is Matthew's direct way. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis is called Genesis. Matthew is doing something very, very intentional here. And he's saying, hey, I need you to take this word and look back. Now, let's talk about that word for a little bit. In our modern translations, we just translate it an account of the genealogy because that's what Matthew's giving here. He's giving a genealogy. We translate it genealogy. Here's the interesting thing about that, though. There is another Greek word for genealogy which gets used in the Bible, and that is not this word. In the Greek, uh, it's genealogia. That's just where we get our word genealogy from. Paul uses it in like 1 Timothy chapter 1 and Titus and some other places to say, hey, don't waste your time with mindless genealogies. So why doesn't Matthew use the word genealogy and instead uses the word Genesis? Because Matthew wants you to pick up on something that he's trying to tie into all of this. Because the word Genesis or Genesis means beginning or it can mean origin or it can mean birth. So Matthew's claim is this is the origin of the story of Jesus and it ties us all the way back to Genesis. Now that's interesting in itself, but hold on to that and jump down to verse 18. And in verse 18, Matthew's going to say, the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. Would you like to take any guess on what that Greek word for birth is in verse 18? It's genesis. It's genesis. So wait, when does the story of Jesus begin? Does the story of Jesus begin in genesis or does the story of Jesus begin at his birth? Yes. This is the claim of Matthew. Right from verse 1, Matthew has just made some crazy, extraordinary claims. Already, he's setting up this complexity that the story of Jesus is far bigger than you ever realized. And he's going to go in and give the name of Jesus. Ieso Christu, Jesus. We'll talk about more of that in two weeks. But we'll go to Christos, or Christu. That's not Jesus' last name. I just want to always clarify that. Jesus was not born to Mary and Joseph Christ. Kids did not call him Mr. Christ. It's not his last name. Christ is a title, like king, and it's the title from the Hebrew word Meshiach, or Messiah, which means anointed one. It came to mean within the Hebrew text, the one that was going to come and rescue Israel, like they just sing about. This is the Messiah, 
O come, O come, Emmanuel, come rescue us. It's a claim for the Messiah. So Matthew's claim is that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament, that he is the Meshiach. And then he's going to say he's the son of David, which means he's connecting us back to the prophecy for David in 2 Samuel verse 7, where God tells David, hey, one from your lineage is going to reign on the throne of Israel for all eternity. And he's the son of Abraham, which takes us back to another covenant in Genesis 12, where God promises Abraham, hey, from your offspring, there is going to be a blessing into all of the world. So are you picking up on everything Matthew has just said in one verse? In one single verse, Matthew is taking this claim that Jesus is the beginning before Genesis ever began. He is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. He is all of these things. He is the king of David. He is the blessing of Abraham. Now I'm going to unfold all of this for you is what Matthew's saying. Do you see how incredible the Bible is? I mean, come on, this is, this is amazing. And then he gets into the part that you're all really looking forward to. So... Here's what I did. I have a little chart up here. The text is kind of small. I'm sorry for that. It's just kind of what it takes. But to give you a list of these names, I have emboldened some names that I want to highlight. But for now, let me just try my best to read through this. So try your best to stay with me. I'll try my best to communicate it and not butcher all the names. You ready? Okay. Let's buckle in with this. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, and Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife, and Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Sheathiel. Sheathiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abudad. Abud. Abud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Eliad. Eliad fathered Ealziar. Ealziar fathered Mathen. Mathen fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until, thank you, I appreciate that. I did practice that a couple times. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David until the exile of Babylon were 14 generations. And from the exile of Babylon until the Christ were 14 generations. So what on earth is Matthew claiming to say here? Because he's claiming to say something. Matthew wasn't just like, I want to put a really long list of names at the beginning of my gospel. There's some purpose behind what Matthew's trying to get at. In one one, he's already claimed that the story of Jesus stretches from eternity to eternity, rooting itself in creation, Genesis 1, in Israel's promise of Abraham to bless the world, in the kingly promise of David to rule over the world from eternity. So what does this genealogy mean? Let me just point out some things to you. I'm not going to do this just verse by verse by any means, but I think there's a couple key texts and key names that are worth mentioning. The first four are the names of the women in the text. Because that's not normal for a kingly lineage official document. 
especially in the patriarchy of Hebrew culture. You don't give the name of women. And if you do give the name of women, the only women you really mention are the matriarchs, right? The, the women that are Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, definitely not these four women. Because each one of these four women embodies a story of scandal and intrigue severe enough that I'm not even comfortable really talking about the details of these stories from the pulpit. So I'll just give you some very general overviews. So we start with Tamar, who is a Canaanite. She is not an Israelite. And Genesis 38 tells us uh, this story where her husband dies. She had married an Israel, uh, Israelite. Her husband dies, and so she goes to his father uh, to then take claim on the husband's younger son, which was a normal custom in that time. The father then uh, does not give her that, and so she dresses up like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law. This is the story in Jesus' Jesus's lineage of how Jesus comes to be. And then there's Rahab, who's another Canaanite prostitute from the evil city of Jericho. You can read about that in the book of Joshua. There's Ruth, who is a Moabite. And Ruth in herself is a great person from what we read in her text. But if we go back and look at who the Moabites are, the Moabites are descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. This is the Bible. It is shameless in what it is presenting you because it's saying this is the real story of humanity. This is how we are. And then Matthew doesn't even say the name Bathsheba. It's almost like he blushes at the story and he just says, Uriah's wife. And yeah, she probably was a Jew, but that story in itself is covered in the downfall of a king who at one time was after a man after God's own heart. That the story results in murder and other stuff. That's just a horrible story. And then there's also a fifth name on here and that's just... Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, a pregnant teenager out of wedlock from a little town, Podunk, North Israel, called Nazareth. Why? Why is Matthew giving these names? They don't give any sort of credibility to the kingship of Jesus. Instead, they almost would seem to distract away from the kingship of Jesus. But yet Matthew's trying to say something here, and I think it's something like this. Matthew's coming in saying, hey, just so you know, I'm not shying away from it. This story of how Jesus got here has all sorts of people wrapped up in it. There's male and there's female. There's Jew and there's pagan. There's good and there's evil. He's saying something about Jesus is Israel's Messiah, but he's more than that. He's more than just Israel's Messiah. And then we get to the end of chapter, or, or verse, chapter 1, verse 17, and he gives this kind of, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and David until the exile were 14, and exile until Christ were 14. And we read that, and we know, like, Matthew's doing something there, but I don't really understand it. I'll see if I can give you a little bit of clarity in this. This is going to feel somewhat like conspiracy. It's not. This is just biblical. So again, not secret code to uncover something new, just what Matthew's saying. So it was normal within Hebrew context to take letters and equate letters to numbers. That wasn't a weird thing for them to do. And so if you take David, in Hebrew there's just consonants, D, V, D, or det, vav, det, which would be the fourth letter, the sixth letter, and the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You add those together, you get 14. In Hebrew culture, th this was kind of the equivalent in the way that we tie, what number is Michael Jordan? 23. We know that, right? Because the name of Michael Jordan is tied to the number 23. It was the same for King David. David is tied to the number 14. 14 became representative of a kingly number. 
So David in himself is 14. Where does he fall on this list? I have the numbers up here just to make it a little bit easier on you. What number is his name on the list? He is at the location of 14. That's incredibly important. And then Matthew's going to give that three times over. And the third one, the king, is no longer David, but Jesus. Now again, Hebrew culture stuff we miss because we don't always get it, but it's very common. In Hebrew culture, you don't have great, greater, greatest. You just give three affirmations of something. So when the Bible says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that's Hebrew's way of saying the triple is the most, the most perfect. So Jesus is the three times over of David's king. He he is better than King David ever hoped to be. Jesus is like King David, but he's more than that. Another thing, we'll just keep digging around in all of this. If you go to that final column of those names, it's pretty interesting because David says there's supposed to be three sets of 14 generations. If you do the math on that, it should add up to 42 names. Pretty common. Matthew's a tax collector. He can do math. Now, if you go and you count the names in this text, you only get 41 names. Now, there's one school of thought that says maybe we leave King David at 14, then we also put King David at 15 so that it all works out. But I think Matthew's smarter than that. I think there's something intentional, and I think the intentionality comes in verse 16. Because all the way from verse 2 to verse 15, Matthew's saying so-and-so fathered, so-and-so fathered, so-and-so fathered, so-and-so fathered, 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 over and over again. And then he hits 16, and he changes his language. He says, Jacob fathered Joseph, and what we expect to hear is Joseph fathered Jesus. That's not what Matthew says, because we know that's not what happened. Instead, he says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus. So the yelling question in our ear was, well, who is Jesus' dad then? This is what Matthew wants you to be puzzled about. Why is there a gap? Who is Jesus' dad? He's the son of man, but he's a little bit more than that. By the way, that's what in two weeks we're going to talk about because that's where Matthew goes with the next part of his story. But I'll just go ahead and answer it for you. Who is Jesus' dad? God the Father, right? His name is Yeshua, God saves. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the Son of Man, but he's more than that. I'll give you one more. And let me just kind of point this one out, and I'll say at, right from the start of this final point, it's not one, if I were you, I would put just a bunch of weight in. This is something that just across my studies I found somewhat interesting. I, th- I think there's some good arguments into why it's interesting. But Matthew doesn't give us a commentary on what he's doing. So until you get to heaven and ask Matthew, it's hard to know if this was intentional or not. I think it was, but that's just my opinion, okay? So I got to do some interactive parts here. Let's start in verse 8. In verse 8, There's a name, Asa, Father Jehoshaphat. Now, I'm curious, for those of you that have your Bibles open and have a different version of me, do any of your Bibles not say the word Asa there at the beginning of verse 8? Does anyone's Bible say Asaph instead with a PH on the end? A couple head head nods. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Matthew in Greek writes the term Asaph. He puts the Greek letter phi on the end of it, which makes a PH thing. We can look at, look back and see This is what Matthew writes. He writes Asaph. Now, is Asaph the son of Abijah? No. Asa is the son of Abijah. Why does Matthew change it? If you go down a couple more verses to verse 10, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amon. Do any of your Bibles have the term Amos there at the end instead of Amon with an S instead of an N? A couple of you are saying yes. It's because Matthew, he changes it. 
Matthew writes the term Amos instead of Amon. He changes the Greek noon to the Greek sigma, changing the name from Amon to Amos. The question is, why does Matthew do this? There's a couple of schools of thoughts, three perspectives on kind of why. The first one just says, hey, whatever source Matthew is pulling from probably wasn't accurate, so Matthew's just copying down that source. He made a mistake. It just is what it is. But I don't think that's true. Matthew was a Jewish man. He would have had this lineage memorized in his own right just to know it was a part of being Jewish. If you wanted to trace your lineage back, you knew especially the lineage of the kings of your country. It was that common. I don't think Matthew makes a mistake here, so I think that one's not possible. The second one is to say, well, Matthew just takes some liberty in transliterating these names from Hebrew to Greek. It's not anything significant. Some of those names lose letters. Some of them pick up letters. It's not a big deal. It's not noteworthy. So just translate it Asa or Asaph and move on. It's, it's not a big deal. The third one, and the one that I, I hold to, is that Matthew's actually trying to hint at something a little bit more intentional. Matthew's trying to communicate something a little bit more, and so what he's doing is playing with these names in the genealogy, and he's editing them to show that Jesus is not just the fulfillment of the genealogy, but he's the fulfillment of more. Because in the text, in the story, Asa and Ammon are two horribly evil kings. They're terrible. They're not good men. Their names don't even deserve to be in this list. They're there because it's historically accurate. But Matthew says, hey, in a Jewish audience, the people that are going to read this, they already know those names. So what if I just tweak them a little bit and I change with one letter the name Asa to the name Asaph? Have you heard the name Asaph before? Should ring a bell for the Psalms. There's a bunch of Psalms called the Psalms of Asaph. Asaph was the man that David placed in the tabernacle when he moved the tabernacle to Jerusalem to lead worship. So the claim is maybe Matthew's nodding at something to do with the Psalms. And the same then goes for the term Amon. Amon's an evil king. Maybe Matthew drops that in and adds that S to Amos, who is a prophet, one of, one of the minor prophets, to say Jesus also fulfills what is being said within the prophets. So here's then the idea. Jesus is absolutely the prophetic promise given to Abraham and David. But he also fulfills the Psalms and the Psalms longing for a Messiah. Oh, and he also fulfills the prophets and the prophets longing for a rescuer. The end of Amos in chapter 9, it says this. In that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. So the thought is, and there are some other commentators that have said this, that Matthew's getting at, hey, 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 hey. Jesus is the fulfillment of this lineage, and he fulfills Asaph's hope for a Messiah, and he fulfills Amos's hope for a rescuer. Jesus is far more than you could ever have thought he was in just reading surface level. And I think there's something to it. Again, don't quote me on that one forever. Don't hinge everything on it. I just think there's something there. Jesus is absolutely the fulfillment of Abraham's and David's promised lineage, but he is more than that. And there's even more to be said in this text, breaking down the importance of three sets of 14 with Daniel's prophecy of the Jubilee of Jubilees in Daniel chapter 9. I can't go into all of that right now. Here's my point. All of this to say, in giving a mere list of names, Matthew is shouting at us, Jesus is far more than you could ever anticipate. 
Jesus is more than the story of a baby in a manger. Jesus is more than Israel's redeemer. Jesus is more than the Davidic king. Jesus is more than the son of man. Jesus is more than Daniel's jubilee of jubilee. Daniel is more, or Jesus is more than Asaph's long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is more than Amos' foretold rescuer. In fact, every time you think you begin to comprehend the magnitude and majesty of Jesus, you only find another layer of his complexity and wonder because he's eternal. This is Matthew's claim. What does all this mean for us? I mean, cool, that's, that's great stuff 2,000 years ago. Why does this matter to Portalis in the year 2022? And I think I would just say this. From the beginning, Matthew has just screamed at us. The story of Jesus stretches from eternity to eternity. The story of Jesus stretches from eternity to eternity. Guess where you're located in that story? Like it or not, you are engulfed in this story. There is no escaping. It stretches from eternity to eternity, and that means it matters to us. 2,000 years later, thousands and thousands of years later from Abraham, it still matters because it's a story from eternity to eternity. So there's some implications that we can then draw out of that. I have three things. I'll go through these quickly, but I, I want them to be noticed. Number one, Jesus' story is our story. Jesus' story is our story. We, we live by stories. Every culture in this world sets its laws and its reasoning not just through law books, but through all the stories that convey what they believe is right and what they believe is wrong. Every ism we have from Marxism to capitalism is affirmed or denied through story. We use stories to convey who we are. So the question is, what's the story we're living into? And Matthew's claim is that the story we live into is the story of Jesus, which begins from the start of Genesis to the end of this world, from e eternity to eternity. That the best way to be human is to live into the story of Jesus. And this is what you're invited into. This is where Matthew's going to go with the rest of his book. Let me tell you this story and invite you into it. That you too have a place within the story of Jesus. Our problematic tendency we have today is we reverse that. We don't want to be a part of Jesus' story. We just want Jesus to be a part of our story. So Jesus is our psychologist and our therapist that just kind of helps us feel better. Jesus is our financial investor. That, hey, Jesus, would you put your stamp of approval on my business, please? Jesus is our life coach. He's our ethics police. He's here to bless our plan, bless our retirement, bless our health, bless our family. And that's not the story. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that the story, stretching from eternity to eternity, has its climax at a cross where God himself dies for our sins. And then the call is that we follow by laying aside our story and picking up our cross to follow him. Jesus' story is our story. Number two, everyone is invited into this story. Everyone is invited into this story. I'm telling you, if this story includes people like Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba, God can use anyone in any situation to fit within to his story. Because this lineage tells us good things. Wonderful stories of kingdoms and life and riches and family and success and growth. And it tells us total brokenness. Stories of slavery and civil war and exile and decline and division and murder. Now, now, don't ever hear me say that God was the cause or the author of those things. I do not believe God authors evil. He is perfect and good. 
Rather, what is displayed is God's continual power being able to take even the most atrocious evils and turn that weight in on top of itself to bring about his plan to his glory. This is the ability God's has. So here's the invitation of the genealogy. You are welcome to join into this story that's marked, even if your life is marked by utter chaos and broken relationships, drug addiction, anxiety, depression, devastation, whatever it would be, you can still come and God can still use you as a part of his story because that's how good and powerful he is. You are invited into this story. Number three, we can trust God as the author of the story. God's hand is all over this story from the start of human history leading to the cross. His hand is all over the church leading from the cross to out into the world, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. God's hand has not moved. It continues. It remains. He is still leading us from eternity to eternity. There are multiple times that the story seems to fly off the rails with nothing but impeding doom to follow, and yet somehow God takes the pieces and works it back into a story more beautiful than anyone could have ever anticipated. And here's the thing. If you've been following Jesus, you know this. You've seen this unfold in your life so many times because it's the story I'm living right now. You guys know this. I, I sat up here in June and gave you one of the most heart-wrenching stories of my life after we lost our first two embryos. And that still hurts. The reality of God's salvation doesn't mean the pain just dissipates and goes away. It's there. And yet God takes that and rewrites something more magnificent and marvelous than we could ever anticipate. This is God's ability in our lives. Now, don't hear me communicating some sort of prophecy or prosperity gospel of if you just sow your seed here and you believe in God, everything turns out good and you never have any problems. That's not this story. But the story is when you take all your brokenness and you lay it before the author of eternity to eternity, he will do things you never even anticipated, things you never even imagined. Because that's what our God does. And all of that in a genealogy, right? So here's where we close. Where are you in this story? Where are you from eternity to eternity? Because the invitation stands, you're invited to play a part and to be within this story. In fact, that's what we're going to celebrate here when we celebrate Lord's Supper. It's remembering the story from Genesis, before Genesis, eternity into eternity, where Jesus said, I want everyone to be a part of this story. If only you would believe in me. You can be a part of this story by just putting your faith in Christ, asking him to forgive your sins. It's available. I'll be here to talk with you if you want to talk with that. If you've already done that, I would just remind you right now, whatever your story looks like, however good or bad it seems, however broken or celebratory it would be, that the author has not changed. And I'm telling you, if he can start with Abraham working people like uh, Tamar and Ruth and Asaph, then he can use you. In fact, the invitation is that he wants to use you. The question is, would you let him? Would you just surrender your story to him, making his story your story? Father God, thank you for what you do in your text. God, I, I thank you for just the pure wonder that is the Bible. God, I pray you would help us to, to just embrace it, learn it, know it, love it. 
And God, I pray that you would help us to be a church that is not trying to put your stamp of approval on our story by any means, but is just trying to submit ourselves to your story in an incredible way. God, let us see the glory of your authorship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.